Welcome to the 66th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, continues to receive industry-wide praise. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Information on a wide range of medical topics can be found on his website, robertpearlmd.com. Let's begin with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life, and then go to discuss some of the medical issues of broader impact. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, COVID remains relatively stable in the United States. However, there are fears that a particular subvariant of Omicron with higher transmissibility and increased ability to overcome immunity, either from past infection or from immunization, and it's about to grow in prevalence. Already, Europe is seeing cases rise. And if those fears are recognized in the United States, it could lead to a surge in cases just as winter arrives, and there'd be a resulting increase in the number of deaths. Whether the new bivalent vaccine that we discussed in previous episodes will be effective against the subvariant We don't know that at this point. However, it offers the best protection that's available now. In parallel, we're seeing a flattening of the number of patients dying from COVID around the globe. This is according to the director of the World Health Organization. And he said that the end of the pandemic is in sight. He pointed out that deaths were at the lowest level worldwide since March of 2020. And in parallel, the Center for Disease Control is slowly reducing the restrictions that it recommends, including on the wearing of masks in all healthcare delivery sites. The evolving threats from COVID, to me, they're they're reminiscent of two heavyweight fighters about to enter the ring. Everyone knows the battle will be intense. In this case, between people's immunity, and an even more transmissible COVID strain. And there's reason to believe that either fighter could win. But unless the struggle ends in a metaphorical draw, either the vaccine will be effective and the pandemic will continue to ebb, or the virus will be increasingly resistant and cases, hospitalizations, and deaths will soar. As the show Game of Thrones popularized, winter is coming. And that is all we know for sure at this point. Robbie, if the pandemic's ending, what's going to happen to the various vaccine mandates? As we said in the last episode of Coronavirus, The Truth, employers are backing away from continuing and enforcing them. Adding to that process was a six to three ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court to halt the executive branch's requirement that all employees that work in firms with 100 and more people should be required to have proof of vaccination or a weekly COVID test. 
At the same time, the Supreme Court declined to hear by a five to four vote, a challenge led by Missouri and nine other states, including Iowa, of the vaccine mandate for workers in healthcare facilities that receive federal funds. This requirement is currently in place for over 10 million workers at 76,000 hospitals and nursing homes that receive Medicare or Medicaid payments. The court felt that since the healthcare requirement was tied to federal government funding, it was a federal prerogative to mandate it in the context of potential transmission of a dangerous virus to at-risk patients. Robbie, you wrote several months ago that Americans have put COVID-19 in the rearview mirror. What about the rest of the world? Jeremy, the sense that the worst of the pandemic is in the rearview mirror is now global. It was reflected in the WHO statement that the end is in sight. It's also clearly visible by Canada's recent announcement that it will be dropping all COVID pandemic travel and border restrictions. This decision reflects the reality that at this point, just about every person has either had the vaccine or isn't going to ever get it. And among those unvaccinated, the overwhelming majority have had an infection and their immunity is about as good as it's going to get. And if both of these assumptions are true, then either we have to decide that the time has come to discard the restrictions or announce they'll be here forever. The future does not look particularly different than the current time period. In the US, what we discussed many months ago is happening at an ever more accelerated rate. Last week, I flew from New York to San Francisco and no one on the plane was wearing a mask. Most people seem to accept that what exists now is the new normal. The 100,000 plus deaths a year from COVID, they're viewed the same as the 50,000 deaths from traffic accidents, essentially unavoidable. And like winter colds, Americans accept that they are likely to get COVID and recover. In essence, people are putting their fears aside since few people are willing to accept forever the limitations and requirements that would be needed to drastically change those numbers. Robbie, how is that mindset playing out with officials in the United States? Directionally, exactly the same. Although regulators are taking smaller steps. As I mentioned at the beginning of today's podcast, the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, has said that mandatory masking of everyone in a healthcare setting won't be required. The agency now recommends that facilities, including hospitals, medical offices, and nursing homes, in areas without high transmission rates, can decide for themselves whether to require everyone, which would include doctors, patients, and visitors, to wear masks. When the CDC talks about high transmission rates, it factors in the number of new cases and also the number of new hospital admissions and additional data on the strain that is being placed on outpatient healthcare facilities. For the CDC, this recent announcement is a big psychological and policy change from the past, even if it lags the more laissez-faire actions of most Americans. 
the CDC's shift accepts that the virus will be endemic for the foreseeable future, that the rate of infection will fluctuate, and that on occasion, the virus will become epidemic in different geographies and greater preventive means need to be applied. But it also acknowledges that while that is happening in one place, that the opposite may be occurring in another. I wish the CDC's guidelines and the details were clearer. Most people can't tell you what the current transmission rates are where they live, but I appreciate that the CDC seems to be trying to add segmentation of risks into their recommendations. You know, Jeremy, every time our nation has applied a one-size-fits-all mentality to the pandemic, we've gotten it wrong for large segments of the population. Let me ask you, Jeremy, how much do you think people listen to or even care what an organization like the CDC says and recommends? Robbie, before the pandemic, I would say that most people respected and uh, listened to the CDC and other public health officials and, and took what they said to be true. I think the way the CDC and other major public health officials communicated with the public during the pandemic was so confusing and polarizing and such a debacle that a huge amount of people have completely lost faith in these organizations and officials. I think it might even take an entire generation for these organizations to regain the trust of the public. Robbie, listeners remain confused about the wisdom of taking Paxlovid when they develop infection after vaccination. What's new? Jeremy, what's clear is that for people at high risk, this medication proves helpful at decreasing the probability of severe disease, hospitalization, and death. What's unclear is the exact value for the average individual. And we still aren't sure the implications of rebound that happened to President Biden and Dr. Fauci and many Americans who have had the disease, taken Paxlovid, and after five days, rather than the virus disappearing, their symptoms have returned. Now, recent data has begun to unravel this uncertainty and answer these questions. Researchers at the NIH did an in-depth analysis in eight patients of disease rebound after Paxlovid treatment. To their surprise, they found that Paxlovid, rather than inhibiting the body's immune response, as some people had feared based on the rebound symptomatology that developed, that Paxlovid treatment actually led to a robust rather than weak immune response in these individuals who had rebound. As such, it would seem that taking the drug for longer than five days wouldn't have a very positive impact since the patient's immune response has already been accelerated. More specifically, patients with rebound disease after taking the drug were found to have even higher antibody levels than individuals who were infected but didn't take the drug. Possibly this means that some of the symptoms reported after taking Paxlovid, rather than reflecting out of control infection, may result from the body's strong immune response. Given the small number of people studied, however, listeners should consider the findings from this report preliminary and not definitive. Robbie, let's stay on these seemingly bizarre associations with COVID-19. 
What's new on long COVID? Recently published study of approximately 100,000 people from researchers in Scotland found that nearly 40% of people still had lingering symptoms several months after being infected with COVID and that 5% of people six to 18 months after COVID infection had yet to fully recover and might never. That data seems more worrisome than some of the studies we've discussed on this podcast in the past about long COVID, but some of the variation in this research data they reflect differences in definition as to what is a symptom and what qualifies as long COVID. More specifically, it's possible that some of the increased numbers in this study reflects a less restrictive definition for long COVID that others may be using. I say that because for each of the symptoms identified, and these were things like breathlessness, brain fog, reduced mental acuity, what they found is that approximately a third of people who denied having been infected still reported these symptoms nonetheless. As such, even being sure how many of the reported symptoms indicate long COVID remains unclear. Phrased differently, in these patients who had had COVID, we can't be certain whether the symptoms that they reported months later was an association, meaning that it was not directly related, or whether the COVID infection was definitively the etiology, the cause of these long-term problems. With one third of people who hadn't been infected experiencing them, it is hard to be certain. Among those who reported having had COVID, the highest incidence of long COVID was in people who had been hospitalized for COVID. And in this study, people with asymptomatic cases and individuals who had been vaccinated, both groups had a reduced risk of experiencing prolonged symptoms after infection. Although given that the overwhelming majority of people infected never needed hospitalization, on an absolute number of basis, people with long COVID would be ones who had had mild disease. If you're hospitalized, what we know is that you have a higher probability of developing long COVID. But from the reverse side, if you get long COVID, you most likely have had a mild case. Hopefully that math makes sense to all of our listeners. Robbie, any updates on what we discussed previously on COVID-19 vaccination and alteration in women's periods? As listeners remember, we discussed a couple of episodes ago that women were posting on social media that they were experiencing a change in the timing of their periods after they had been vaccinated. The newest study published in the British Medical Journal one week ago confirmed that there was about a one-day delay in the onset of menstrual bleeding after vaccination compared to women who hadn't been vaccinated. The researchers used the popular period tracking app called Natural Cycles, and they included women from around the world. What they did is they compared de-identified data, so it was not by the name of the individual, 
but simply the data on the menstrual history. And they compared approximately 15,000 participants who were vaccinated with 5,000 who were not. And what they looked at was the start of the periods related to the predicted date. For the women who had been vaccinated, they compared the menstrual cycle after vaccination against the three previous menstrual cycles. And for the women who hadn't received the vaccine, they looked at the last cycle against the previous three. Not only did the average period start a day later when women received one shot, but for the women who had received the Pfizer vaccine and had received two doses within a single cycle, remember this was a three-week gap recommended between vaccination, unlike the Moderna that had a four-week gap, the delays in these women who had had two shots during the same menstrual period, the delay went up to, on average, four days. The good news is that the overwhelming majority of women, the timing of their periods return to normal in the next cycle. Researchers hypothesize that the reason for the delay in onset of menstrual bleeding is linked to the acute inflammation and the immune response that the vaccine generates. Robbie, as usual, what's this episode's newest piece of information about COVID relative to kids? Jeremy, the latest data indicates that parents remain very hesitant to vaccinate their kids, particularly the youngest ones, despite encouragement from the government and health policy experts. And the percentage of unvaccinated and unboosted kids remains significantly higher than officials and surveys from the past predicted. So let's look at the data more specifically. Among kids aged five to 11, fewer than one in three is vaccinated, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics. This compares to the vaccination rate in kids 12 to 17, where the percentage vaccinated is 58%. And in children under five, only 325,000 kids in total have been vaccinated, according to the CDC, and that's a rate in the low single digits. For context, however, in this age group, and this is the young children, ages one to four, when, they, when we look at March 2020 to June 2022, what we see is that 202 of them have died and over a million have tested positive for coronavirus. And this is what's frustrating to many health policy experts. Whether this lack of uptake in vaccination reflects failure of communication about the vaccine and the frequent incidents of both disease and 202 deaths, whether it just reflects parental hesitation out of vaccine concerns in the youngest of children, or whether it's just COVID fatigue, that's still uncertain. A second story comes from the US Preventive Services Task Force, and they now recommend that pediatricians should routinely screen children as young as eight for anxiety, 
and screen children ages 12 and older for depression. Whether this new recommendation is a reflection of the higher rates of mental health problems that we're seeing due to the social isolation created by the pandemic, or whether from a more op optimistic side, it's a result of greater awareness of the psychological issues that kids face in society today, some out of COVID, some out of social media, some out of other causes. What we know is that COVID has impacted clinical medical practice and oversight group recommendations dramatically over the past two and a half years. Robbie, listeners are really enjoying our expanded focus on medical events beyond COVID. What's new? Jeremy, researchers at Axios Ipsos polled people on their views about their lives today. And contrary to what some might have predicted in the context of COVID, most were relatively upbeat. 52% said their home life was very good, with another 38% saying it was somewhat good, a total of 90% of people having an optimistic report. Similarly, 47% said their mental health was very good, with another 39% saying somewhat good. 32% of respondents said their physical health was good, with another 51% saying that their physical health was somewhat good right now. And even when it came to the finances, 30% said that they were doing very well, and 48% saying said they did, were doing somewhat well. But of course, that leaves 22% of people not feeling great economically, and that's consistent with other polls. Robbie, we talked in the past about the resurgence of polio in the world, including the US. A listener said she was very worried and asked if there was any new information. Unfortunately, Jeremy, the listener has reason to worry. We had thought that polio was no longer a threat to Americans, but we were wrong. And now the World Health Organization has added the US to the countries where what is called vaccine-derived poliomyelitis is circulating. I want to be very clear. This problem doesn't happen with the vaccine that's currently being used in the United States. That vaccine does not have any live virus. But the oral vaccine that we used to give that we no longer do is the one that is responsible for this, these new infections and for the risk of transmission. For a variety of reasons, the oral vaccine continues to be used in other nations. I mean, remember, as an oral vaccine, it's a lot easier to administer than one that requires an injection. And to be clear, people in the US who are vaccinated aren't at risk of developing polio. So if the listener or entire family are vaccinated, they will be okay. The current polio problem happens when someone receives the oral vaccine in another country and they come to the US to live or visit. The oral vaccine, as I just mentioned, contains live virus, although it is attenuated and the virus persists in the body of these individuals for the rest of their life. As a result, when they sneeze or cough, 
the virus can be shed and it can be transmitted to people. The growing threat from the polio virus can also be identified in wastewater. The big threat happens when someone who hasn't been vaccinated comes in contact with someone who has received the live virus vaccine. When that happens, the individual can develop an infection and become paralyzed as a result. And listeners need to recognize that for people who become infected, there is no cure. Universal vaccination of all Americans using the vaccine that does not involve live virus would obviate the risk. But that doesn't exist today in the United States. And as such, public health officials are concerned about the risk and they are uncertain how to stop the threat. What else is new? Jeremy, on our Fixing Healthcare podcast, we often discuss the lack of primary care physicians in the United States and the very negative consequences that has on the health of Americans compared to other nations. Many listeners have written to us and wondered why we don't just open more medical schools or expand class sizes in the ones that currently exist. Data released by the National Residency Matching Program highlight why this approach of building more medical schools isn't the solution, but it also points to where a great opportunity does exist. Through a combination of this national data source and information from recent graduates, they've calculated that approximately 8% of graduating doctors failed to match into a residency program last year. And then among students who attended medical schools outside the US, often the Caribbean, 42% didn't match. This represents thousands of doctors who could be trained through a residency program in primary care to provide preventive and interventional services to patients in underserved areas, in rural areas, and in almost any location in the United States for which we today we do not have an adequate supply of primary care doctors. What's bothersome is that these individuals have had four years of medical education and without a residency program, that will be wasted. And that would be a shame or continues to be a shame for our country. The limiting factor is governmental funding for these residency positions. And it's also the preferences of institutions that do the training to focus on specialists who prove to be far more economically lucrative for the hospitals in which they do their residency than in primary care, which fails to generate as much revenue for these institutions. From my perspective, not utilizing these doctors to provide primary care is but another example of how broken our entire healthcare system is, and it begins with medical education. How about a third healthcare story, Robbie? Jeremy, this story is about America's huge medical debt problem. It came from the Commonwealth Fund's survey of 6,300 adults aged 19 to 64 
And the numbers shocked me. 41% of people said that as a result of medical bill problems, their credit ratings had gone down. 39% said that medical bill problems had forced them to increase their credit card debt. 37% said that it had led them to deplete their savings. One in 10 reported having to take out a mortgage on their home or obtain a bank loan to pay their medical bills. And 26% said it had made them unable to afford basic necessities. I mean, Jeremy, that's one fourth of Americans whose medical bills make them unable to afford basic necessities. To me, that's a shocking statistic. And remember, it's likely that most of these respondents on this survey had private insurance. Despite this, the number of Americans who owe money to debt collectors is higher than for any other reason. And the problems are about to become much worse. For those with private coverage, healthcare inflation is projected to rise by double digit increases. Out of pocket expenses will almost certainly increase significantly. Half of the people surveyed said they would be unable to pay a sudden $1,000 medical bill. And for those who obtained Medicaid during the pandemic, as a result of the stopgap financial legislation passed, that coverage is scheduled to expire soon. And these individuals are likely to become uninsured again. We're going to see the economic consequences on people and their families growing in the near future and the consequences on their physical and mental health certainly will become worse. Rodney, how about on the healthcare delivery side? Jeremy, in our last episode, we talked about Amazon's acquisition of One Medical. One Medical has 188 primary care clinics in 25 cities, and Amazon paid $3.9 billion to acquire them. And we pointed out how this is a major move forward in Amazon's quest to play a major role in healthcare. But it's not just Amazon. Since then, CVS, the nation's largest pharmaceutical chain, that already had acquired Aetna, an insurance company, has most recently purchased Signify Health for somewhere between eight and $9 billion. Signify Health has 10,000 physicians who provide virtual and in-person home health. And almost immediately after that, Walmart, the nation's largest retailer, and United Healthcare, the nation's largest insurer with 53,000 employed physicians, they signed a 10-year partnership. I believe these companies are acquiring the pieces to be able to replace the entire healthcare system, including the pharmacies, the doctors, the offices, even insurance coverage. I think they're playing a long game and that they're plan over the next decade is to totally disrupt and transform medicine as we know it today. This is a really important topic, but it is very complex. So Jeremy, let's plan to put it on the agenda to discuss these moves in a few weeks when we do our Diving Deep podcast 
one of the four fixing healthcare programs we create each month. But let me ask you now, how would you feel getting your healthcare and your son's medical care through Amazon or a large retail store like CVS or Walmart? Robbie, I value my relationship with my primary care provider and my son's primary care provider. I think those relationships are very important. I do recognize the need for urgent care and telehealth, though. In fact, I even did a telehealth visit last week when I wasn't feeling well after my doctor's office and clip care were closed for the day. I always do these through the same health system my primary care doctor is based, though, because it's easy and they have access to my son's record and my medical history as well. I think, though, if Amazon, CBS, Walmart, et cetera, made it easier and more cost-effective, I totally would consider it. For the time being, though, I'm happy with how I currently get care. Robbie, any parting thoughts? Jeremy, my, my biggest observation is that the patient as consumer is likely to rise in importance in the future. Some of that, as we've just said, is the entrance of these retail giants into medicine. These industry behemoths are consumer focused. They vary somewhat in their approach, but you have Amazon with its one-click technology, Walmart that offers good quality at low prices, and CVS, which offers the opportunity to have all the patient's data easily available, regardless of which pharmacy they visit anywhere in the United States. But there's a second reason that I think the consumer will become more important in the future than they have been in the past. And that's that earlier this month, federal rules created by the 21st Century Cures Act went into effect. They mandate that healthcare organizations give people unfettered access to their full medical records in digital format. No longer can organizations tell patients it'll be weeks to get the information for you, charge them for Xeroxing each page, or only be willing to send the information to the patients by fax machine. This information is required to comply with the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, known as HIPAA, which ensures the privacy of the information and secure transmission on behalf of the patient. Assuming organizations comply, this will advance medicine from the 19th century in which it exists today, that where doctors exchange the most vital information using the fax machine and 1834 invention to the modern era. And this legislation includes penalties up to a million dollars for organizations that refuse to make the leap. Jeremy, all of these changes are small steps at empowering patients. But as the pace of change accelerates, as individuals have more data, I believe they're going to demand the same excellence and convenience in the healthcare they receive as they currently do in retail, in travel, and in finance. And I think that will be a approach that will improve the health, not just of individuals, but as our nation as a whole.
As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.